This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Got major life expenses, but your bank isn't helpful? Break up with your bank and check out a SoFi personal loan. You could pay off high interest debt, cover home renovation costs, travel, and more. With a fixed monthly payment and no fees, a SoFi personal loan is simply a smarter way to pay. View your rate in 60 seconds without affecting your credit score at SoFi.com slash podcast and get your money right. Loans originated by SoFi Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. NMLS 696891. Welcome to a very special edition of that Mill podcast. Today we've got three all-time Millwall greats. To be more specific, three fantastic Millwall goalkeepers. First off, we've got Brian King, who made 340 league and cup appearances for Millwall between 1967 and 1975, missing just one league game in five years. Signed by Benny Fenton from non-league Chelmsford City as cover for Laurie Leslie, is alongside Alex Stepney, seen as the best goalkeepers Millwall have had since the Second World War. The second ever player to win the Player of the Year award in 1972 when the club narrowly missed out on promotion to the First Division. An England under-23 international, he was called up for the senior squad for a game against Portugal in 1974 and left the club for the relegation from Division 2 in 1975. Now based in Norway where he has scouted and managed several clubs. Our second guest is Brian Horn, Coming from a Mill supporting family, Brian came through the youth ranks in the mid to late 80s going on to make 196 league and cup appearances for the club. An excellent shot stopper, Brian won youth honours for England at under-19, under-20 and under-21 levels. He was also voted player of the year in the year of 1987, a year before making a vital contribution in the rise to the first division for the only time in the club's history. He didn't play for the final two seasons under Bruce Rioch after falling out of favour with their manager. He now runs a corporate hospitality company and is a UEFA match agent. Our final guest is David Ford, a player who made 339 League and Cup appearances for the club, after arriving on a free transfer from Cardiff City, via a successful loan spell at Bournemouth, which saw him save a penalty from Mill legend Neil Harris. That obviously did enough to convince Kenny Jackett and Tony Burns at the time, with David arriving and going on to make 157 league appearances in a row over the course of three seasons. 
He established himself as Ireland's number one, becoming the oldest player to complain in a competitive game for the side when he took to the field against Sweden in March 2013. Fordy was also voted Mills Player of the Year by the fans in 2014, and ever present in the 2010 league playoff winning team, he also played in the 2013 FA Cup semi-final. He now runs a personal coaching and development company, Buckle in for two parts of a great, great, great show. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah, well, one of our big, yeah, we'll just come back on to one or two other things. One of our big, yeah, well, our biggest rivals, West Ham United, uh, and for the you played there in 2009, the night when, uh, yeah, Chopper scored for us and they started losing their minds. What was that like? Oh, that was, uh, honest to God, that was an insane, it was like an outer body experience. Um, it was like I was there, but I wasn't there. And you're just there as the game has gone on. It was like there was two games going on at once. There was a game going on in the pitch and then there was the game of the fans and the crowd and the police and everything else. And you could just feel it in the air that night. You could feel there was something right. This It, it, was, just, it was a special night because the clubs hadn't, I think, played for such a long time since I think it probably it was the 4-1 was it the four nil? The four nil at the den before yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 That, that, the Mother's Day, yeah, the Mother's Day massacre, yeah. So um there was there was huge tensions being built and apparently they were saying then that the police force, the Met Police didn't put enough police on on the on on the day. Um all the pubs and bars and uh, were all boarded up before the game. We just arrived at the ground, you just thought, right, there's there's something something not right here. But for some reason um, we were League One at the time, doing 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 quite well, but we just our level just went like that. And next thing, we were probably the best team for maybe 70, 80, 60, 70, 80 minutes of that game, where Chopper scored. Alan Dunn could have scored one of the best goals he's ever scored in his life. He ran from right back, went through about five or six players, and I thought, oh my God, he's going to score an absolute worldy here. Next thing, he p rolls it into Robert Green's hands, and he just bends over and picks it up. And after all that hard work, so there could have been, there could have been, it could have been a fantastic night. They scored late on, and then they just had the legs on us over over extra time, and um, they scored a couple of late goals and stuff. But it was it was the pitch invasions. There was a couple of times we got called off the pitch. We were back on the pitch. There was uh, I remember one stage, one of the one of the chairs, like a boomerang, just came out around my head and went back out around the pitch and. Ah, it was just it was just crazy. It was a crazy game, but um, it was great to be a part of and great to actually be a witness and observe all that. We was always unlucky at um, sorry, Neil, we was always unlucky at Upton Park, weren't we, Fordy? I mean, a couple of years later, when Junior Phobe rugby tackles you in, into the goal, and then Winston Reese scores. That was heartbreaking that day. I, was, I didn't go to the first game, but the second game in particular still rubs me up the wrong way now because last time we played them, they score a goal like that. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was an absolute disgrace. I don't know how I don't know how the referee didn't give that decision because I come out and punch the box four bar, just absolutely muller. I wasn't right for a week, months after. I had a dead leg. I had such a dead leg after it. And I remember thinking, right, the ball's got punched and it's gone into, I think, it's still gone to the edge of the D. And Winston Reid, who hasn't scored since, just ran up and half volleyed it into the top corner. And I just thought, oh my God, my life can't get any worse here at the moment. So... Yeah, we were definitely unlucky that day and uh, yeah, it was pretty unfortunate. And, and like that, I'm sure Brian and Kingy has plenty of experiences where you haven't got the rubber green as a goalkeeper and the sense of injustice in that is uh, it's a tired pill to swallow. Yeah, because we were 1-0 up, yeah, well, obviously, that day because didn't Liam Trotter pop up yeah. Yeah, with one? I can remember that going absolutely bananas for about five minutes afterwards. Yeah, they put us right. up in the skies that game because I think obviously the first game they learned from their mistakes and they put us up into the clouds kind of hidden away. I remember That's the right. escort before that everything. It was one of my fondest memories really. Just I remember like obviously being the only young kid with my dad but just great days that you, you love those sort of days really. Yeah, like yeah, I know I know they're, they're, they're bitter rivals and stuff like that like you know but I think, I think both clubs kind of need each other and they both feed off each other and they're two fantastic clubs and it's just great to see when you when you chase back the history of it even you think right you go back to the boys the days on the dockers and stuff and you know one came from scotland and one was english and how that all started and the tradition and the years that's come on and you know it's it's amazing it's amazing and then to play in those games that i would have heard about when i was younger like you know i was always told about i was always told about um the glasgow derby being a celtic fan and being an irish boy 
um, them in Rangers. I was always told about you know um, Liverpool, Everton, um, and Millwall, Millwall, West Ham. You know, it was always it was always a big big game that people people spoke about. It was notorious. Talking yeah. about um, the West Ham West Ham game because obviously you've all three played West Ham games, um, Horny. So um, we'll come back to you in a set, Horny. But King, you played West Ham in um, in. Cripsy's in Cripsy's um, testimonial, didn't you? Yeah, that was an incredible game actually, um, because West Ham had a lot of. Well, well, it was the full first team they sent over, and um, this was in '71, I think. And um, Harry, of course, started his career at West Ham, and then he um, he made his move to Millwall. He was a big friend of Bobby Moore's. He was, and um, it was a great day for Harry. You know. Bobby Moore captain West Ham and Harry captain Millwall that day. But there was a big crowd at, at the old den. And um, I believe the West Ham supporters thought they were going to take over the cold blow lane end. And um, that resulted in quite, quite a sort out before the game even got started. Um, but the atmosphere was always electric down there. You know, the, I think West Ham supporters were worried about getting a train home, to be honest. But um, it it was a good game. I mean, it was a, it was a testimonial game, but there were tackles flying around, and um, it, it it was just a good atmosphere. It was a really good atmosphere. Great testimonial playing, I tell you. Who played in goals for West Ham, Kingy? Bobby Ferguson. Bobby Ferguson. Is he Scottish? Yeah, yeah. He was. Um, I think they brought him down from uh, sixty-five grand. I think Ron Ron paid for him. Uh, Greenwood, but they had Billy Bonds, um, Patsy Holland, Jeff Hurst, Bobby Moore, Frank Lampard. Um, you know, they had a good side. They had a good side and um, we had a good team as well that day, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's a good taste of playing against real top-class opposition as well. Um, and you can only admire, you know, it's just after the World Cup in Mexico and you had Banks here, and uh, not Banks, but you had Morrow and and Erste who played in that. And just going back to what you said earlier, David, about Gordon Banks' save, I think it was the occasion, and and yeah. um, you know the whole thing there in Guadalajara, and and yeah. one of my best mates was playing left back in the day, and that was Terry Cooper. Um, he's a great pal of mine, Terry, and um, we always tease him a little bit. Thought he had a bit of pace until Jairzinho went down the line and fired that crossing. But, I mean, everything everything was perfect, wasn't it? Banksy was near post. Ball came over. Great cross. The height, the height Pelly got up to head that ball. Yeah. And he'd done everything right. And then Banksy, like you say to young goalkeepers, if you're, if you're, if you're doing practice and whatever, and you're on the near post, and ball's got played to the far, towards the far post, so you've got to make that distance and get anything you can in the way of it. Um, it's a hopeless cause, really. But the way Banksy got that ball up and over the bar, I mean, and I think that was the first time he wore those type of gloves. Um, he got them from all sport. Um, a German, I don't know what it was, Seth Meyer or... UHL, wasn't it? UHL? Sorry? UHL, wasn't it, on the gloves? I've no idea. But they were blue and white, his gloves. And... Um, they they were given it they were given to him again because although the ball was very much like the old ball, it moved around so much because of the high altitude. Yeah. And um Banksy found it much easier to use those to use those gloves and I suppose he had set Mar to thank for that save. Yeah, no, it was amazing. No, just gonna add uh, one thing that's just come to my mind there, I just wanted to share it with you actually and uh I think it's it's pretty it's pretty relevant to the to the evening and Kingy's book coming out and stuff was the like you were saying about the West Ham game and the likes of Bobby Moore and that team. Um was Harry Redknapp there at that time or was that Harry after? was on the bench. Harry was on the bench yeah. in that game. Yeah, and um a good old friend of yours as well, Stuart Morgan. Kingy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it was Stuart that actually brought me over from the West of Ireland. His son came to play with Galway United and Stuart came over yeah. to watch a couple of games. He was like, there's a decent keeper in the West of Ireland. Someone take him over. So I went over to Barrytown. Peter Nicholas was the manager there and Kenny yeah. Brown, who's the director of coaching now at the academy. Um, he was the assistant manager. So I went over to Barrytown, but it was Stuart that took me over. And I remember, I remember chatting to um, Stuart and I was telling him about, you know, 
about playing at Millwall and he was talking about, you know, obviously yourself being there and, you know, the records you hold and all that kind of thing. And he said, you know, he, he, he paid you such a big compliment that day. He just said that, he said Kingy was unlucky because of the calibre of goalkeepers he had in front of him at, um, at, at English level. Like, you know, and I know you did get the one cap that time, but he did always say that you were, you were unlucky and you deserve more. Like, so as you said, there was what, um, Gordon Banks, was Ray Clements there as well, was he? Well, Ray, Ray joined Liverpool when I joined Millwall. Um, Did he? He sent from Scunthorpe. And um, there was Joe Corrigan, Phil Parks, yeah. Alan Stevenson, um, Jimmy Rimmer. I Jimmy mean, Rimmer, yeah. You know, there was a there was a Leicester keepers and you had Shilton who was coming up. We we played Leicester in, in the Cup in 69, the year they got the Cup final. And, that's, and that was the biggest crowd I played at the old den. And that was just under 35,000. Wow. And I mean, if you, can, if you can imagine, I played at the den with 100 people. I played there with 35,000. The, the atmosphere, and I'll always say, I don't care if you've got 10,000 Millwall supporters in that stadium and 60,000 in that Emirates. They make more noise in the old, at the old den than they did in the Emirates now. I tell you, it was, it was, it was wonderful, wonderful to play there. Banksy said to me, how do you play her every other week? He said, fight me to death. And uh, I mean, it did. And, he's, and he played everywhere and played in front of 100,000 people all over the world. But he said, 20,000, that mob there. God, Jesus Christ. He said, you've got to play well. You've got to play well, haven't you? I yeah. mean, Horny, you played in uh, Simul Cup, didn't you, against West Ham? A few league games, mate. We, we got beat uh, 1-0. Inksy scored. Uh, we got beat 1-0 at home. And we got beat 3-1 away, I think, in the league as well, if I remember rightly. Um, but, yeah, we, in the Simod Cup, we were we beat them. Um, at West Ham, the likes of Liam Brady, the great Liam Brady, was playing for, for West Ham at the end of his career. Um, and they had a young Paul Inks playing for him as well. Um I think they had Alvin Martin at the back, if I can remember rightly. Alan McKnight was in goal that day. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, Alan McKnight made a mistake and Teddy got a, Teddy got a second goal and we held out and one two one. So that was one for the Millwall boys to to, um, to, to like. It was it was a win. A win, a win at Upton Park and 2-1 was, was nice. I think that's the last time we beat them there as well. I'm not sure. Yeah, but that um, yeah. I think, where they actually closed off the whole of the away end wasn't it and they just gave us one corner yeah it was on the left hand corner yeah it was the left hand corner as you come out yeah so it was I mean it was just say it was mobbed in there I can always remember it was it was crazy always crazy and oh. I, you got to remember you got to remember let me tell you stories uh, obviously my family and Millwall supporters I come from Essex so obviously everywhere in Essex are Millwall uh, West Ham supporters so you can imagine me having a, a West Ham Millwall bag coming back from training on a, on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night from Southwark Park, sitting on the train with West Ham supporters getting on it. You can imagine, can't you, I'm shitting myself, going down and going down on the on the train from down into Bazardon or, or where I was brought up, you know, with uh, loads of West Ham's and me carrying a Millwall bag and on the train. But um, no, it was all good. All my mates are West Ham supporters and... It was uh, it was it was good to get one over on them. Put it that way. I mean, it's weird as well. I mean, you know, we talk about West Ham. I think we've played them around sixty games, starting in um, I think it was eighteen eighteen ninety nine. But the reputation and the rivalry and the hatred between the two clubs is probably one of the most feared um, or well known rivalries throughout the world. Well, I, I can remember there was a stage where they started pushing supporters under trains. I don't know if you can remember that. 78, but, wasn't it, where they threw the, the fellow at New Cross, didn't they? Threw him under yeah, the train. Threw him under the train. I mean, and then, you know, his retaliation after that, it was, it was, it was just unbelievable. So you can imagine when, when you do play against the West Ham or whatever, it is, it is a... An, just a, a unique experience. You, need, you can feel both sets of supporters. I don't know if you experience this, both of you, Brian and, and Fulgy, that, that both sets of supporters wanted to get each other, get at each other during the game. That's that's what I felt in, in the old West Ham ground, that 
both sets of supporters just wanted to get at each other and fight. That's, that's yeah, it wasn't it. about the game at all. No one wanted to know about the game. The game was irrelevant. Yeah, it, was, it just radiated. That, that, that's, that was the feeling I got playing in them games. Uh, it wasn't about the football. It was about getting at each other or, or whatever. It was mad. It was just to be fair, crazy. My, my career nearly ended up um, we played West Ham at the, at the Den in the championship. I think it was the year they got promoted and we drew nil all. And just at the start of the game, I was just leaving me a water bottle around the back of the goal. <laughs> I think it was Frank Noble. The re- usually you give it the referee, gives it the one keepers and you give it the old thumbs up. So next thing I'm down the back of the goal, putting me bottle up. The next thing I see him taking a corner and Frank no- or um, Mark Noble takes it and hits it. And I'm still behind the goal. And it just sails over the crossbar. And it goes out for a goal kick. And I walk around the goal and I'm like, what's happened there? The ref said play on. And I, I like, ran up to the referee. I was going to murder him. I was thinking, you could have just ended my life. You could have ended <laughs> my career. I mean, <laughs> murder you. I, mean, I got I mean, away with one that day. Talking about, uh, obviously, there we're going to. But I mean, you talk about people under trains uh, or, or that sort of rivalry. I mean, in the game you played in, what, 2000. Nine, when it, I think it was when you were there with um, there was a, a Millwall fan who got stabbed at, at that game, yeah. Um, Al, is it Alan? Alan, um, because he used to come, uh, geez, what's the second name? He used to come into the uh, the players' lounge after games after that, and a few of us went up to see him in hospital that time. And he had like an, an S wound from his chest all the way down his stomach, and he'd been badly stabbed that night. I remember hearing about it after the game thinking. There was a man, man badly stabbed. And I think what happened was he was with his son and he managed to protect his son. And look, as he knew, he knew and he, he put himself on the line. You just thought, well, that's, that's some man, you know, to, to look after his son and his child that way. And he stood out and he ended up getting paying the price for it. But luckily it didn't cost him his life. And that's the sad thing about it is, you know, it's, it's football means so much to us, but to lose a life, there's, there's, there's no, there's no pointless. Pointless. Absolutely. But on, on that very subject there, obviously, you know, mad games and all that, what's your most fearful game you've played in? Where you actually thought, oh, oh, I, I could be banging trouble here. Oh, um, I don't know really. I suppose if you were opposition coming to the old den, there was always a fear. There was always a fear. Um, and I remember in 67 when we played Aston Villa, I wasn't playing, but I was stood where the players come out just before the end of the game. And a referee called Norman Burtonshaw had awarded a penalty to Aston Villa, like two minutes from the end. And um, they scored, which resulted in, in them winning the game. And the reaction afterwards when, when all the punters got on the pitch... And I mean, if that had got hold of him proper, I think that had killed him. And um, it, it was really a fearful moment because he ended up, you know, getting whacked um, and two guys were arrested and brought, brought off, the, off the pitch and into that room in front of those dressing rooms. And I mean, it, it, was, really, it was really a violent moment. I, it really was. And I'm thinking, Jim Coombs was playing in goal for Aston Villa. And um, he'd been hit on the head about four times with lumps of coal. And um, he said to me, he said, I ain't even got an open fire. He said, um, but I mean lumps of coal. He said, where, where'd they get him from? Probably the docks, I said to him. But, but, um, he was on fire the same game, yeah? <laughs> I'll tell you what, he needed a log. Um, <laughs> he, um, but I suppose some of the northern grounds were, were, were a little bit eerie as well when you played at Man United in the... In the early days, it was um, I used to share you with pennies and all this carry on. But I, I was never. I remember going to, with Coventry to West Ham, and um, God, blimey, they called me everything, Millwall scum, and you name it, they called me, and I was playing for Coventry. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, it was very intimidating in the offline ground, and um, I'm thinking, in some ways. I was glad I never better went with Millwall to play against West Ham because the only time I played was in Harry's testimonial and that was bad enough. I mean, that, that got to a frightening stage at one at one point. I mean, what's your most fearful game then, Horning? 78. 
Ipswich at home. Um, I was with my family um, going to the game, my mum, my dad. And that day, um, I'll never forget that the Ipswich supporters coach pulled around the corner and there was a house on, on one of these corners where, where we was walking down and, it, and all there was loads of bricks that had obviously come away from the house or wherever it was. And the mill supporters were, were chucking them through the, the windows of the coach and there was young kids. You know, I was only nine, but you could see the kids were absolutely scared out of their life. Um, and that, that, that sort of scared me. But in, in a way, it stayed with me all my life from from when I, I played for Millwall of, of what it meant and everything else. But the funniest thing was the day we, we got promoted with a trophy of Millwall, unbelievably, the, the referee didn't work it out to put us down the bottom end as you come out in the second half. So we the second half, we've kicked off Eldon Road end. And uh, when he's blown the whistle, obviously the fans have gone onto the pitch. And... Uh, I'll never forget, a supporter just come up and knifed my shirt off my back. Just literally straight up, my shorts were off, everything was off, and just knifed my shirt off my back. And I ended up walking down the tunnel in my boxers, in my little slip that you used to wear in them days. So, But I think everybody was getting done at the same time. You know, I'll never forget, he just come up, I said, hey, I'll take it off, have it. So I went, no, don't worry, just went straight up the back of it and took it off my back. Um, so that was that was them, them two things. But West Ham, the, the games at West Ham are always, always for me, a rivalry. I want it to be a healthy rivalry, as Fordy said, you know, um, where the clubs have come from on the docks and the way both clubs have, have gone on in, in, their, in, their, in the way the clubs have, have gone. I think, you know, I think everybody likes playing against West Ham and everybody wants to get one over on them the same as they want to get one, one over on us. But I think, you know, it's got to be a healthy rivalry. Someone, you know, we've got to make it a healthy rivalry. It can still be ferocious. It can still be all the things that we want it to be. But, you know, please don't anymore lose lives. Let's, let's, let's be sensible and get it out there. And and uh, But, you know, I can't wait for the team to play them again. I'll be in the stands. I'll be, I'll be shouting and the same as all the middle supporters to beat them, you know. But... Um, yeah, the, the West Ham, the West Ham game, the 1978 game at home against Ipswich, and the, the celebrations of the, the game at home against Blackburn. That was funny. You know what happened there? We, Fordy, we had to, we had to beat them at home. We had already won. We'd won the league. We'd done everything. So if we beat them, it meant the Crystal Palace got into the playoffs. So all that week, we made sure that we drunk as much as we could because we was allowed to drink whatever we want. After we won at all, we had won. So Frank and uh, another funny story, I've got to tell you this. So we just beat Hull 1-0, right? The chairman has gone. We're champions. We're up. We're in the hotel. Um, he said, we're going back. And he said, we'll go home Sunday. Champagne on us all night. So we get back to the hotel and... Uh, so there was Dean Oryx, God rest his soul, he's, he's passed away now. Um, Teddy, Woody, myself, my mother, we said, fuck this, we're going out. We're going to go and find a nightclub, try and pull a couple of birds, we're off, we're going out. So anyway, we went out and we ended up, Fordy and Kingy, in a nightclub in Hull, where Hull was having their presentation do that night and you can you can imagine we're in the corner trying to get older birds they're having a presentation do and in them days the club shot at two o'clock in the morning so Woody's pulled a nurse and we were you know we, we whatever so we've got to sneak back into the hotel now so anyway we get back into the hotel it's four it's got to be three half past three in the morning everybody I mean everybody is still up drinking still up drinking we thought we we're going to get back they're all in bed Everybody's still bang on it, everything else. But the manager, John Docker, is at the front door. He knows we've gone out. He's clocked us. So as we've come and he's gone, you, you, you and you, make sure you're at Welling for a two o'clock kickoff. You're playing against Cholton in the reserves. Sunday this was. So we've just won the league, right? We're all bollocks. Roger Cross has got to now drive the minibus back down the motorway. So we said, well, we might as well fucking start drinking. So we did. Roger Cross, that was at West Ham, was the. That's yeah, right. Yeah, Roger. Was yeah, Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. manager at the time. Yeah. So he drove us all back down. We're being sick out the window on the way that down past the Amber Bridge and and everything else. We get we pull up at, at, at Welling about half past one, 
<laughs> everybody's saying what you lot doing here and we lost 7-1 that day we couldn't we, <laughs> we couldn't and it just carried on that week so it got to the game against Blackburn we got beat 4-2 at home and Crystal Palace didn't get in the playoffs so it worked out lovely <laughs> <laughs> by the way Ollie you shoved it behind you with a frying pan <laughs> so what Oh, Kingy said there's someone behind you with a frying pan. <laughs> yeah, I heard that, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, 40. Dead. So, um, what was your most fig? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, because even, even that game at, at, at West Ham that night in 2009, I never felt afraid that night. I never felt fearful and even the games up at Leeds and stuff. I think one game that probably comes to my mind and I think the most fearful I've ever been at a game, I was probably 15 years of age and I was playing for a club called Belvedere in Dublin and I used to commute up from Galway every weekend. And uh, funny enough, they had just, um, Millwall had just signed um, Mark Kennedy. Um, yeah, yeah. Mark Kennedy back then, Sparky. So Sparky had just gone from Belvedere and, and they were a feeder club to, to Millwall at the time. So I had just come up and I thought, right, if I go to Dublin here, I've got a chance of getting myself. And uh, I think one of the lads I played with in that team, Jerry Whelan, he ended up going across to um, the U team as well. Uh, but he didn't make it in the end. But we went to watch on a Friday night. We went up to, I was up in Dublin and I went to watch Bohemians and Shamrock Rovers, which are two big Dublin rivals. And I remember being at Daly Mount Park and I remember just... Like what, like what Horney said, the game was going on, but then there was a game outside down the back alleyway, and I was looking over the terraces out the back, and I seen a red, I seen a red and a green um, flare coming, and by God, the day sick kick seven shades of shite over each other that night, and I've never been more terrified at a game in all my life. Um, but as as a senior pro, I'm trying to think was there was there a time I ever felt that sense of oh my God. Um, I, I can't think of one at the moment. That's the kind of nearest one I can I can remember of. But yeah. So you honestly weren't that worried when West Ham were losing it and running past you and. Well, I, I, I think I think it was me. I don't know. It was my own um, my own innocence or my own stupidity, one or the other. And because I suppose I had been at West Ham and I'd understood the clubs and stuff, and people were just going mental around me. And 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 they've even watched people of my mates and family have watched, watched clips and said of that you can get them on YouTube. Or like yeah, Kingy was saying earlier, and there I am just in the middle of them, just walking off the pitch, like you know everyone's just freaking out. And I remember just going over to some of the lads, and some of the lads were petrified to even walk back out onto the pitch. And I was just thinking, right, this is where where I grew up and where I come from and where my um, my family came back from. You know, it was always that sense of um, there was always that intensity, you know, where I, where I grew up in and stuff like, you know, so an old toe to toe in a fight wasn't, uh, wasn't shied away from. So that was always in my nature and uh, it was always in my blood. So I always felt pretty comfortable in those kind of volatile situations. We had the story with Horny there when he said, obviously that he went out after the whole game. Were you part of the, um, the boys what went out when you were in Ireland, when the, when you come back from the Guinness factory and then you sneak back out? <laughs> yeah, they told you that one, did they? Yeah, they did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we went over. We went over to Dublin for uh, pre-season. And I was absolutely... I can't remember. Was this the first year we went or the second year we went? And, um, you know, I was delighted, obviously, going back to Ireland and stuff like that. Like, you know, flying into Dublin, lads were buzzing. And we used to have the Secret Seven. I don't know, the lads tell you about the Secret Seven. So the Secret Seven was myself, um, Neil Harris... Paul Robinson, Alan Dunn, Gary Alexander, um, Andy Frampton, and Tony Craig, I think. That's probably eight. But anyhow, it was the secret seven. <laughs> so we used to go, uh, we used to, we used to just like that, arrange, arrange little, an odd evening. We'd go for a little pint of Guinness, pint of the black stuff. And uh, I remember one day we've, we've come down the back of the hotel and we've gone down the back way. And we're coming out this back alleyway or whatever. And next thing I'm walking, we're all chirpy, going for a couple of points that evening, um, breaking the curfews and just having that bit of team bonding and uh, that bit of rebellious nature in the boys. And um, next thing I turn to my left and I look in the window and I see Tony Burns and Richard Shaw looking straight back out at me. And I'm there with my best gear on, shirt on, the whole lot polished. And they look at me and they just freeze. Next thing I look down and I see Kenny and Joe Gallon facing the opposite way. 
So the lads are all coming down making thing, and I'm diving. Like, say, I'm rolling on the floor, and they all think I'm just piss potting around, like being a goalkeeper rolling around the floor for a night out. And I'm like, the gaffer's inside the door. The gaffer's inside the door. Because he hears a commotion, and he gets up, and next thing we're all in against the wall, like crawling down by the wall by these barrels of Guinness. And we managed to get out. Like it was like the escape, the escape, the victory, escape the freedom. Um, and they, they were great nights for Team Bondon. But the next day, we ended up getting to the Guinness factory. And it was so funny. We got into the Guinness factory. I don't know if any of you been there. Have you ever been there, Horny or Kingy? No, 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 no. Oh, that's brilliant. And Jesus, I, back then, I used to drink Guinness to pay the band, like, you know. And um, we're up, <laughs> up, up, up at the top of this bar. And they've got three different Guinness pumps. And, you know, you pull the pint of Guinness three quarters and you let it settle and then you top it. That's the standard traditional way of pulling a pint of Guinness. So we had all these free tickets. Joe Gallon had arranged all these free tickets. So we got all these free tickets and we drank the bar dry that night. And in the end, they were like, no more drink fee. No more. You have to go over there. So they started pulling around at the other two taps. So what they did was they started pulling at the other two taps and they had the three quarters. And we'd go around and grab the three quarters. We wouldn't even wait for them to fill up. <laughs> <laughs> had a good 10 or 12 points yep. back on the bus so we ended up getting bam we ended up getting back on the bus and the gaffer um the gaffer was like right be back in the hotel by by seven o'clock like so we all jumped back on the bus back by seven o'clock and um the gaffer went straight through the uh straight through the doors up the stairs and there was a circular round door we just went in the circular round door came back out and we had the taxi man waiting for us again like yeah so jimmy jimmy abdi was your savior wasn't he Oh, Jimmy is a saviour, yeah. He started singing La Marseillaise in, uh, as his uh, introductory song in the uh, Oliver St. Gregory in the middle of Temple Bar, Temple Street. And then Donny, Kenny, Kenny comes out. Kenny comes out and Donny had this orange T-shirt on, the collars up, this polo shirt. And there he was, there he was down the middle of uh, the Cobble Street in, um, in Temple Bar doing a handstand. Coins and everything, and Kenny just walks out of the bar. He's like, Donny, what are you doing? <laughs> also, would it, would it, Jimmy, what, what kept the fire exit open for you boys when you returned? Yeah, it was like, Jimmy, I, um, geez, I can't remember. I can't remember who, who had it open. I just remember walking through it. <laughs> <laughs> Kingy, Kingy, did you have any, um, mad going out stories with the team you were in back then? Yeah, probably did actually. We we went to Bournemouth one year, played a couple of matches down there, Paul Town and, and Bournemouth, and um, all the lads said that we were going to go out for a drink and maybe. And um, on the way back, we'd been out, we'd had a right a right good skin for, and on the way back, Brian Brown, as we're walking back, jumps up and is it one of them Belisha beacons? You know the Belisha beacon when you cross the road. Yeah. He's um. He's hit it, so it's come off the thing, you know, off, off, off the light, you know. And, of course, we're all in the process of running. It's going to smash it on the floor. And it was made of rubber. So, Brownie, in his wisdom, has decided to kick it, our folly. And just as he kicked it, it is copper coming around the corner. <laughs> we're in all directions. I mean, we're all... The Bournemouth Winter Gardens, um, me and Kitch jumped over this fence... And Kitch caught the arse of his trousers on this um, on this fence, and honest to God, it was like a, it was as though it as though there'd been a bomb go off. You know when you see a bloke and he, all his all your trousers are in bits, and Kitch has gone. I'm not going to get back in the hotel. Look like this, and um, because we had eleven o'clock curfew, and dear old Leslie was um, dear old Laurie was the um, was the fella. So what we done was we went round the back and they had a big lawn. And uh, as about eight of us, Frankie Saw and Kitch and Brownie and um, Poss and all this, and, and we're all we're all coming across the grass as though we're commandos. You know, when you're on like you, on your on your arms and on your knees, and you're coming across. And we must have gone about twenty five yards on this grass, and all trying to keep quiet. And we got within about two yards of the back door of the hotel, and the bloody floodlights come on. And Laurie stood there like, <laughs> we're all lying. We're all lying there. And quick as a flash, Kitch, he said, what are you doing? Kitch says, I'll drop me change on the way out. We're all looking for it. And, um, and Laurie, <laughs> Laurie said, in. So we got fined about eight quid or something, or tenner, which was an awful lot of money in them days, I can tell you. Talking, but, about, uh, things, talking about fines there, I mean, I'll take it, all of you, but I mean, what's, what, what 
What's the most fine you've had, and what, what for? Well, I got fined. I got a yellow card for bouncing a ball off of Eric Potts, his head, who played for Sheffield Wednesday. I give a penalty away, and he's trying to fight to get the ball. And I'm, he, he's about five foot is, and he, he keeps on and on and on. So I just said, well, you can have the ball here, and I bounce it off his head. And I've got, I've got a thing from the FA that King, who was holding on to the ball, trying to stop the penalty kick being taken, was confronted by Potts, um, who made an effort to get the ball back. But King aggravated the situation by bouncing the ball off of Potts' head. <laughs> I got fined a fiver from the FA, ungentlemanly contact. Never got fined at the club. We never had it at a club. We never had fines when I was playing at the old den or when I, the eight years I was there. We never had fines. What, did, what about you then, Horney? I can't see you not getting a fine. Oh, we either had a few. <laughs> well, I, I got fined five grand in one year. And back then it was a lot of money. Um, great. Uh, yeah, he used to find me, Bruce Riot, like two weeks' wages for being a pound overweight. Like coming in Monday morning, he obviously wanted to get rid of me for sure. But um, he used to find me, and I used to go, you can find me all you fucking like, but I ain't going nowhere. So eventually the PFA got involved, but that year I think I got done about five grand. Yeah, because the last two seasons he sort of, he, he really took a disliking to you, didn't you? You didn't play for the last two seasons, did you? No, I did. Um, it was, um, I played, you'd be quite surprised, I played about 32, 33 games in the first season, and then the second season probably about, 30, something like that under him, but sort of um, he, he straight away, he, he just took it. I've been promised the biggest contract of my life at the club. Um, and obviously we just got relegated and he come in and he, the first thing he did when he come in, he said, you ain't getting your fucking contract. And he, he didn't know me from Adam. So I just went straight to the chairman and said, look, da -da -da -da, it's either this or I'm off. So, uh, he, he took a he took an instant dislike for me for some reason. Don't know why. I mean, the type of person he was, Bruce. We had a fantastic coach, Steve Harrison. Um, I don't know if you've come across him in the game, but mate, he is he's such a top fella. I can't believe it is. Liam McNeil and fucking uh, excuse me and um, Bruce Rock, two Scotch eggs, right? That's unbelievable, right? And then you had Steve Harrison. Well. Steve Harrison just used to say to me, only getting half hour early, we're going to go for a jog around the park, you know, so on and so forth. So he, he looked after me. He was brilliant. He used to get me in. We used to do that. If my weight was all right, and we used to do some handling and different bits and pieces, but he was brilliant. But, you know, Bruce was just trying to fear by intimidation, and I, and I couldn't have it. You know, he, he would come down and be right in my face with a cup of tea in my hand and throw the cup of tea away and... And I used to go, right, is that supposed to scare me now? You know, and, and you know, he, he was just, he just, you know, not every player is going to say that about him. That's my experience with him. But we just didn't get on. We just didn't see eye to eye. Um, I, in fact, I'm not, I'm not even going to say that I didn't like the way he played football. The way he wanted to play the game, I quite enjoyed. Um, I think he was... I think he was, you know, the way he wanted to play football was great. But just as an individual man management, half-time, he was fighting with Malcolm Allen in the dressing room for 15 minutes. I mean, when I say fighting, they're hitting each other. For 15 minutes, the bell goes, we go out for the second half. I mean, absolutely just off his head. Um, so that, that was that was my experience. Them two years, I wasn't going to be beaten. I, you know, I wasn't going to be beaten by him. But the thing was... That was happening when Mick McCarthy came into the club. So all Mick saw was me fighting with a manager. Um, and and that, that was basically, that's all Mick saw. So it, it, my writing was on the wall. I never I never wanted to go anywhere. I still had, I think I still had two years left of my contract when I left the club. But, um, you know, there were seven goalkeepers there. There was myself, Bonnie Ginsberg, Peter Rucker, Keith Brannigan, uh, Aidan Davison, uh, Cole Emerson and someone else. I mean, what are we all doing at the club is ridiculous. So in in the end, um, that was me. I went, I went to Pompey. Well, um, keepers yeah, there. Pardon? Seven, seven, seven at one time. Yeah. One time. No way. Probably it was a secret seven. 
mean, I mean, go to you, Fordy. I mean, what was uh, what was your biggest finding, and what did you do? Um, I think by the time I got to the club at 28, 29, I'd, uh, I'd managed to get a bit of cop on and a bit of sense into me, you know? Um, so that probably, I can't actually recall any, any major fines. Kenny wasn't big on, on fining players. He didn't believe on, on taking money out of players' pockets, but yet he, he had installed a level of what was right and what was wrong. But I think the beauty of like what we said, that secret seven, we just managed the group and the team between us. And anyone that stepped out of place, we all we all we all backed each other, and we we stepped in and we we kind of guarded the team and protected the team that way. But um, I think the most I was ever fined was when I was at West Ham. I uh, I missed training one Monday morning. I went back to uh, Ireland for the weekend and forgot to wake up and get me red eye flight back. So I got fined two weeks' wages. So I think I learnt me lesson after that. It was a great weekend though. It was well worth it. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me just tell you one story how it differs from managers. It's gone again. Yeah, but that's yeah. the frying pan going flying across the room again, isn't it? No. He's gonna he's gonna be back in a minute, isn't he? You can tell this. That's that's a beating. That's a. I don't know. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's in the UK or if he's in Portugal. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so yeah, I don't know what he's. I want to ask what kind of contract he was on. Five grand. Come on, I'm going to have to question that. I mean, while while we're waiting for him to come back, and he'll probably come back. Who's the um? Who's your best manager you played for in Forty? Um, at Millwall. Uh, yeah, at Millwall or throughout your career. Well, at Millwall, um, there was only I had I had Kenny, I had Ollie, I had. Uh, Chopper and Steve Lomas so I, I was lucky enough in those nine years only to have four managers which was which was a blessing but you had um, two clowns though who's that? You had, you had one definite clown and, and one what was he's, the writing was on the wall as soon as he walked into the ground with the with a banner on the gate yeah you know it's, it, it was interesting because um, for, for a couple of reasons you know and, and each one you know taught me so much Neil uh, Kenny Jacket was amazing for me because like that he seen that he seen something in me and thought right he's 28 he's coming to a good age he's probably got the mentality and the ability to to play at Millwall and I had um, an amazing spell learned so much under Kenny Jacket for his style of play and how he understood the club and how the club wants their 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 team set up and and how the game was played he was amazing um, I learned so much under Ian Holloway I learned so much under Ian Holloway for many reasons was his ability to change systems, his ability to play different types of football. And he gave me a lot of freedom as a goalkeeper to express myself in terms of the way he wanted balls delivered to fullbacks. Um, where normally under Kenny, you know, it was it was it was finding the forward man and, and finding wingers and stuff like that. Like so he definitely helped me to evolve as 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 a player at that time. Um, Steve Steve Lomas probably wasn't really there to make that much of an impact. I remember speaking to Steve because I I, I know Steve and um, he was talking to me about you know bringing players in and he was talking about various different signings and I remember out in my back garden just here and I remember saying to him at the time I said to be honest Steve um, I I understand what you're trying to do but I said Millwall's Millwall I've been here a long time and the players you've mentioned to me are not Millwall players and not Millwall calibre players and it will cost you. And um, he said, look, he said, fair enough, I appreciate your honesty. And um, that's what that's what ultimately did happen and stuff. And he was on a bit of a tough one from from the start, being um, ex-Millwall captain, but... Our ex captain. captain, yeah. And, um, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Cheers, that got on well. And, uh, yeah, so, look, it, it was amazing. And then um, Neil had come in and it was, it was difficult for Neil as well because... We were very close as well when we um, we had a great working relationship when we played, and he had some tough decisions to make as well. Um, and like that, I, I totally understood where where he was coming from, um, and where I was in in my career at that time as well. And he had some tough choices to make, and he made those choices. And you got to hand it to him; he made those tough, difficult decisions because, like that, he had to survive. He had to look after his family as well, and ones that I didn't agree with, but um, he certainly made them. Um, and you know, at the time you think what better way to make a statement is you probably go for your, your top player at the time. 
and you're you're you know you go for that that senior senior position and you and you make a statement and you got to hand it to him the thing i liked about neil was you could always see he had a huge ability to be a top manager because he didn't have a problem making tough decisions it probably had him up inside but he still made he still had a great ability to make to make difficult decisions and um yeah i do think i do think neil's going to go on and have a fantastic career as a manager he does he does keep um, he likes to try and deflect all the blame away from his players, doesn't he? And he and he does take a lot of the criticism um, too hard. Um, yeah. Like one of, one of the biggest things I, I thought, why I thought Neil was going to be a, a good manager was very simple. He came in after a game one day and the majority of managers would blame the team. Oh, you didn't run enough. You're not fit enough. All the usual bull that goes with it. And next thing you come in on a Monday morning and now with the sports science of today, you look at the sports science. One, we haven't ran as much all season. Two, the heart rates. Two, the intensity runs. They were all higher even though we got beat. So that's not really an excuse to say that, well, you haven't run enough or you haven't thing. And the amount of managers that use that. And players know. We've all been in teams and we've all watched teams where you're like, right, the tactics are wrong or you pick the wrong formation or you're the wrong team, but not many managers will have that vulnerability and show that courage and say, well, I got that one actually wrong. Where I remember Neil came in one night and we got, I think, four, beat 4-0 four on a Tuesday night or something at the den and I was sitting on the bench and he came in afterwards and he just held his hand up and he said, uh, lads, you know what? That was me. I got that one wrong. And as players, we've all been in that situation. When a manager does that, you actually go, do you know what? I've, I've respect for that. I have absolute massive respect for that. You just held your hand up and that was it. Chatty's tomorrow, Chatty's Tuesday, and you go out and you get on with it. Well, you're not going around thinking, what a prick, why didn't he just call it as it is? So, yeah, that was, um, there were there was a lot of learning in, in those years. So to you then, Kingy, who was your best manager? Well, I, was, I had to go with the man who brought me to Millwall, you know, um, Benny Fenton. He was there for 10 years and um, he was there before I came and he brought me in at the same time as the Posh and Keith Weller, Dennis Burnett. Um, he introduced Ketch. He introduced uh, uh, Dougie Alder. Um, he could certainly see a player, and I'd say it's because he brought me in. But um, <laughs> um, a set of shirts, and you end up with Gordon Hill. I mean, you know, he could he could spot a player. There's no no two ways about it. And at the time with the Posh and Keith, who were who were fringe players at Tottenham, um, for forty grand he brought them in into the football club. I was five grand. Um, Dennis Burnett was fifteen. Played in the European Cup when his cup for West Ham. Um, still young enough to start a second career in in actual fact. And um, he he was um, he was a good manager. I mean, um, we're terribly unlucky that year. We never went up. I was even lucky with when when I was playing at Chelmsford because I had a, f- a fellow called Bill Frith, who um, when he left Coventry, Jimmy Hill took over, and he came to Southern League club. I had Harry Ferry who had won the league with Portsmouth, he was there as well, and and then of course I had the, the privilege of meeting and playing under Sir Alf and and also my manager at uh, Coventry. You know, I was a very talented manager, good experience, Gordon Milne. Had a great background with Liverpool and and uh, and England, so it's it's been it's been a great learning curve for me to see how different managers operate. But as for goalkeeper coaches, we had nothing at Millwall. I relied on Laurie or myself the whole time I was there. Um, Laurie was a great help. Um, I have great admiration for him because he he learned me the trade, and it was a trade that. I displaced him. Um, he came back as a coach several years later, but but um, I have to say, dear old Benny, he was he was definitely one off, and he was special for Millwall at that time. He had a difficult chairman, as we all knew. Um, if you wanted a Volkswagen, there were two ways to get it: um, play well for Millwall or go and buy it. But um, no, I'd say Benny Fenton, obviously, in my time at Millwall. Gordon Jago was a, had a completely new approach. Um, and obviously, Gordon's a clever man and he's made a great living for himself in America. Um, and a very nice man. I'm sorry, sorry when uh, uh, Benny passed away and 
he was a character. He, he was, he was, a, he knew everybody. He knew from Mickey Duff. Um, he used to live near Moro. He used to live near Cherry Venables. He used to come in with, he used to come in with training, training ideas. He'd been talking to Terry and, um, we had all these different things where we were warming up. H King, Queen Jack, 10, you know, we're all different twists, turn up, down. And I used to get them all mixed up. Um, he could never remember what the, uh, what the actual serving names were or the exercises were, but we accepted him for what he was. And uh, I thought he was a good manager. Gave me so same question to you, Horny. And then um, if you want to tell us your story, you've been trying to tell us, but keep going off. And then um, I think we're, we're, draw to a close Best, uh, I think there's two managers uh, George Graham he, 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 he was uh, he was great to be brought brought up with at the club and I, I think George turned me all into a football club I've got to be honest with you I know King you would disagree with me for the times he was there but there was a period of Millwall of maybe eight years where we was going nowhere we was in the, going down we was in the bottom league we was going going our business and uh George come in and, and turned everything around and, and got the club on the footing that I feel that it's in today. I think it was the start of us um, getting into, you know, uh, leaving the club in good hands for John Dockett to take over. John Dock to take us up into the top flight and then Bruce Riel, Mick McCarthy, you know, these type of managers and coming in to, to, to take the club and keep us going up and down from the first division to the championship. You know, and hopefully one day we're going to be knocking back on the door again, even if it's just for a short while to go back into the Premier League and and uh, terrorise all them fans in the in the Premier League in a nice way, my head. You know, make them fearful of Millwall coming into the Premier League again, which would be great for the club. But George Graham was 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 brilliant. He, I've got to tell you the way he handled the players and. And the way he handled the apprentices, you, you were you're not scared of him, but you you, re, you respected him. You know, when he walked past, you you made sure that you know you was uh, not mucking about. He, he'd done your jobs properly that you had to do back in the day: clean the dressing rooms, wash the balls, get the kit ready for the pros in the morning. You know, all that type of thing. Learn your trade, which has sadly gone out of the game now. I, I think that it, as an apprentice, that that really taught you your trade. Whereas now they do nothing. I don't think, not through any fault of their own. I think it's down to to that lovely health and safety element of what, what's coming to the game. But, you know, I found that that was a, a real positive thing for us to do, to clean the balls, make sure everything was put out for the pros, make sure the boots were clean. You used to get maybe 20 or 30 quid, or later in the day you might have got 50 quid if you'd done them well, you know, which was probably, I don't know, about three or four weeks' wages in them days, you know, as an apprentice. But, um, yeah, George was good. And then... When John Dot come in, I think he had a fantastic squad that he was coming through the youth system and and uh, and the players that were already there and the few that he brought in, he, he made us into a, a decent outfit. But the biggest thing I've got to say about Doc and Frank, because Frank was absolutely brilliant as well, Frank McClintock. You know, I don't know if you knew, but when they come in from Brentford, uh, Frank McClintock was the manager and Doc, John Dot was the assistant. Well, when they come to Millwall, the roles reversed. John Dot was the manager and Frank McClintock was the assistant, which is quite a strange way for things to turn out. But they just treated us like men. They gave us the respect they deserved. They they loved the night out. You know, they, they you know we're going out and, you know, they, they let us go out. They let us have a drink. I mean, that was the culture in them days, but it made us very close as a team. It, it, it was close near, as Fully said, the Secret Seven. You know, you go out and, and even though you might be having a booze, you really get tight-knitted with them type of, you know, with them players. And, you know, you take that onto the pitch as a unit. You, you know, you, you don't want to get beat on the day. And that, that's how it was. I'm, I'm sure we, it, with Brian as well, uh, as his time as, as playing for Millwall. That, um, but, yeah, John Dock and, and Frank, uh, John Dock and George Graham were, and the late Theo Foley of called Sponge Man, we used to call him back in the day, BBC, Balls, Bibs and Cones, you know. They, they were the, 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 the brilliant people that have been through Millwall. And uh, I really think, in, in my opinion, George changed Millwall and brought it up to date. And, and, and the club's gone forward from there. We were lucky enough to get a new stadium. And, yeah. and uh, you know, all this coming and, and, and taking the mantle forward. And um, 
you know, that's that's where the club is today. But I think that was due to George Graham coming in and changing the club. <laughs> Obviously, he got into training 15 minutes late and he said, go back to the den. So I'm thinking, Doc, any chance? Like, I've got to drive all the way back to the den and then I've got to drive all the way home. So he said, see you at the den. So obviously after training, half 12, one o'clock, wherever it may be, get in the car, you smash it down, down the A2, get into Millwall, park in there, sit in the players' lounge and wait for him to come back to the ground. So Doc might have turned up maybe 45 minutes later. He goes into his office, knocks on the door, not ready for you yet, just sit there and wait. So... Obviously, it's now quarter to two. Now, for me, you've got to understand, I, I've got to get home. I've got to miss the traffic. Three o'clock, knock on his door, not ready for you yet. Four o'clock, not ready for you yet. Five o'clock, go down the shop, get me 10 Amlet. So, obviously, I'll go down the shop, get in 10 Amlet. Can I go now? Half past five, you can go. He knew, he knew that I had to drive home, it's going to take me two hours to get home in the traffic, I'll get in half past seven. He just went to me, you waste my time, I'll waste yours, see you in the morning. Simple lesson, but something that resonates with me for the rest of my time at Millwall. You know, yeah. it was just simple, simple little lessons like that, that, um, that he told he didn't find you, he wasted your time, I wasted his, so, you know, he was quite entitled to do it, but they were, they were little stories that, that Doc used to do that, you know, used to, used to be brilliant and makes you grow up as a man and, and start sort of behaving yourself a little bit better as you like, as you're coming through from a youth, you know, young pro to, to, to being in the team, so, you know, that, that, that was just a little story, there's loads more, but that was just a, the, uh, the cleanest one I can tell and a story that meant something to me, if you like. Yeah. That's class. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, this has been fantastic. Um, definitely love to do some more of your stories, possibly going forward. I think it's um, it's been great. It's been a great insight into three of our um, different generations' best keepers. I mean, you know, for us, obviously, Horney and then um, you, Forty and mine, you're definitely Omar's um, keeper. Um Obviously, I didn't really get to see uh, Brian King play. I've seen the YouTube videos and seen bits and pieces. But you are three uh, generational um, top, top Millwall legend keepers um, for us. And it's an absolute pleasure um, to have all three of you on the show. We would like to do individual shows with you all um, to go in a bit more about your careers and everything else um, and get some of your stories. So all I can say is thank you very much for giving us um, your time uh, tonight and, and well, I, I, unless the guys have got anything else to say. Mickey, i just got one thing to say that um, obviously for me to be on this show um, following Ray Clements' passing away yesterday, um, I think we take every day and, and are pleased with every day and happy with every day, but for me, when I worked with George Graham, when, when he asked me to come in as a goalkeeper coach and work with Paul Sanson and Peter Grezia, the young goalkeeper that was there was an obvious, an obvious talent. And that was Brian Horn. And I would have loved to seen him stay at Millwall and beat my record. But the other guy, David Ford, who I'd, I'd never met until the playoffs at Wembley. And um, I'd seen him play and because I knew his name, and and if anybody was going to beat my record, I'd have been pleased it was him, because he was a really, really nice chap. He was very humble when I met him for the first time, and I'm thinking now, I think he said to me when we met in the director's box, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to your record, Kingy. And I was standing <laughs> both sides, and I love that, and um, I love the pair of them dearly. I mean, only means a lot to me. And so do you, David. And uh, as I say, if, if anyone was going to beat my record, mate, I'd have been honoured it would have been you. No, thanks a million, mate. That that means so much. And I, I remember that day, It was you said it was such a heartbreaking day to lose the playoffs, but to meet yourself and have that chat. And I just thought, just to stand in your presence, you know, just your aura. And I'm really looking forward to actually reading the, the Lions King. I'm sure it's going to be an interesting read. And like that, every time I met you, you've been an absolute gentleman and, uh, you know, you're well-deserved of your record. And uh, like that, congratulations on the book and I wish you all the best with it and all the success. And, uh, 
it's great that we can come on here and share these types of stories and it's, it's great the relationship as well i have with, with horny and stuff anytime we've been down on the den and up in the gantry watching matches just having a bit of fun and a bit of crack and just enjoying ourselves but it's yeah. been an amazing journey for me and millwall is you know it's 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 etched in my heart you know it's such a such a, a memorable time and it's just always it's going to go to the, the grave with me so that was just simply fantastic again huge thank you to the three guests that we had on david ford brian horn and brian king if you've enjoyed it be sure to get in contact with us and leave a review we always appreciate your feedback and stay tuned for much more millwall podcast related content thank you very much guys take it easy So get new friends. Make sure Progressive's one of them and get coverage today for as little as $100 a year. Do I want to feel the wind in my hair? Guilty as charged. <laughs> oh, seriously, let's ride on your boat. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates annual premium for basic liability policy not available in all states. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.